This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ryan McNeil from over at Reuters. He's been thinking about bats for three years. Specifically, he's been thinking about bats and pandemics. On the news hour tonight, the coronavirus conundrum. The widespread back in 2020, like everyone else, Ryan was following news coverage about the origins of COVID-19, speculation that bats were the source of the virus. She is very confident, about 90 percent confident, and her colleagues are as well, that this came from bats, uh, that there was a transmission from bats to humans that took place at a... But when Ryan heard all this, he thought the explanations he was getting, they generated more questions than answers. There was news coverage about the role of bats and the role of habitat disruption, you know, at the time. But from my perspective, it was it always sort of lacked specificity about, well, where exactly is it happening and who is responsible for it happening? Ryan couldn't let these questions go. So he started learning everything he could about viruses and about bats, too. You know, one of the things that's amazing about bats is, you know, they have this enormous diversity. There's a ton of different bat species. Bats make up something like a quarter of all the mammalian species on Earth. Whoa. Really? Yes. Yes. All these different bat species, Ryan learned, they were like flying Petri dishes for disease. Viruses could incubate inside them and wait for a chance to hop to humans. And over the last two decades, us humans, we've been moving closer and closer to what Ryan calls the Batlands. He knows this because he's been mapping out these regions, mapping places that might end up as the cradle of the next pandemic. These high-risk areas that we identified, 1.8 billion people live in those areas. It's about one in five, depending on who's counting, of every man, woman, and child on Earth. You know, it's not the bats that are at fault. It is us encroaching where they are and where they've been since, you know, forever. I feel like you've become a bat nerd. (laughs) You don't really have a choice um, when you spend this long on something. Did what you found over the last three years reassure you about the next pandemic? No. Not at all. I came away thinking we are doing an enormous amount of damage, and that damage is increasing. Today on the show, can understanding the Batlands help prevent the next outbreak? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's start by defining a term that I think is really important, zoonotic spillover. What is it and why is it important? This is the term that scientists use to describe when a virus circulating among wildlife infects a human. And as far as bats go, of course, there are lots of animals that are reservoirs for disease. But as far as bats go, they've been linked to some, you know, that we've all heard of. SARS, too, of course. COVID. Yeah, yeah. COVID, Ebola, the original SARS, Marburg, Nipah, Hendra. This is like a greatest hits of infectious disease. Yeah, you could say that. A special thing about bats is that they can often harbor these diseases but stay healthy themselves. Scientists aren't exactly sure why. It could be that bats are too warm-blooded for these germs to thrive. In any case, Ryan says, one of the key things to know about zoonotic spillover is that it isn't just about chance encounters between humans and bats. Supercharged economic development rapidly accelerates the way novel infections spread. And if you look at our first story, which takes place in West Africa, we visit a mine in the Nimba Mountains in Liberia that is owned by Arcelor Matal, a Luxembourg-based mining giant. And testing of bats there as mining expansion was occurring found links to Ebola in bats that lived sort of around the mining concession. Hmm. That's not a great advertisement for working in that mine. (laughs) Well, uh, the mine is expanding. They are Liberia's number one taxpayer. And recently, as that mine has expanded, the population has grown. Uh, I believe our number was an 80% increase, according to ArcelorMittal's own documents. And and that's an 80% increase just over a decade. And, you know, that's a common thing that happens with mines across West Africa. Is not only are you going into remote areas, right, and you're, you're taking workers into those areas, but then you also draw people who are looking for work. So it snowballs. It can, yes. Just across the border from this mine, in 2013, bats triggered an Ebola outbreak. It ended up killing thousands. The mine says it's mitigating its risk as best it can. Nevertheless, it's in what Ryan's team dubbed a jump zone. That's a place where humans and animals, especially bats, are interacting in new 
in potentially dangerous ways. These jump zones have expanded by 16% during the last two decades. And they've expanded in some places such as India, which are very heavily populated. So you take India now has, by our estimates, half a billion people at risk that live within these areas. Now, conversely, you could look at somewhere like the Amazon, where, you know, we have an enormous rainforest that is incredibly biodiverse and being chewed up in enormous numbers. But you still don't quite have that that population that you do, say, in West Africa or India or Southeast Asia. But when you build roads into forests and you start building towns, eventually growth follows. Hmm. I want to look a little deeper at how bat-to-human zoonotic spillover works. And I wonder if we could focus in on one outbreak from a few years back, May of 2018, in India. That's where a man named Mohammed Sabith got a fever. Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, he lived in uh, Kerala, which is in the southwest part of India. In 2018, he wakes up with a fever. He's staying with his parents. So he goes to a community hospital. But over the next 24 hours, his symptoms worsen. He is vomiting, has delirium, tremors, violent coughing. And doctors treated him with antibiotics and antivirals, and his lungs filled with fluid. His oxygen levels plunged, and he was dead two days after he became ill. And this was remarkable because it turned out to be Nipah, which is the first known appearance of Nipah in Kerala, in this part of India. I've heard a little bit about the Nipah virus, but can you just explain what it is, like how, how it impacts you and, and how dangerous it is? So they know it comes from bats. It infects people when their eyes, nose, or mouth come into contact of fluids containing the virus, such as saliva, urine, blood, nasal or respiratory droplets. A really good example would be Bangladesh, where Nipah infections, these Nipah spillovers, have become really quite common every year. And the reason scientists have discovered is largely driven by date palm sap. It is considered a delicacy in parts of Bangladesh. The tree is tapped and the, you know, the, the sap runs into these big canisters. And bats happen to love it for the same reason that Bangladeshis do. It's nice and sweet. Yes. Yeah. And they gorge on this. And so... And they end up peeing in the syrup. That's right. And so this was... this. Emergence in 2018 in India was a long way from Bangladesh, and it was a long way from Malaysia, where Nipah was first found. So So it was a kind of a mystery? Like, how did Nipah get here? Yes. So Kerala is still a mystery, and it struck two more times since then in 2019 and 2021. Well, you did find that this man, Mohammed, and people he knew, they were picking up fruit from the ground, right? That the bats had taken a bite out of? Yes. And, you know, the, the scientists tested fruit and other things around around the area, and, you know, the, they didn't find Nipah. Huh. So that's part of the mystery is, is, you know, now the rain may have washed it away. Uh, you know, finding the exact point of spillover can sometimes be very difficult because by the time the scientists arrive, the, the trail's gone cold. Yeah. Your team did do something interesting to understand Muhammad's case. 
you looked at satellite imagery. Can you explain why you did that and what you found? Satellite imagery was key to this entire investigation. Um, So in the case of this 2018 outbreak, you know, you can look at the satellite images over time and you can see the, the houses popping up in this area that was once, you know, much less densely populated. And one of the other interesting things that our model picked up on was a spike in risk right before Muhammad was infected. You mean like looking back at the data, you could have shown like, oh, there's a higher risk of transmission at this point. Why was that? Well, so when I went digging into uh, why the model made that prediction for this particular area, it was because it had picked up on uh, tree cover loss in the area. And so I went and I looked at the satellite imagery and there were a couple of little chunks of trees that had gone missing. You know, it's impossible again to know exactly what role, if any, that might have played in this um, particular incident. But it does point to, you know, that there was habitat disruption going on in this area leading up to when Mohammed was infected. Given that you found that, I wonder if scientists have started coming to you and saying, can we use this tool proactively to figure out where we need to manage risk better? Well, certainly what we hope is that this is a public service of sorts. Um, One scientist named Barbara Hahn, who specializes in, uh, she's a disease ecologist at the Cary Institute in New York, and she specializes in using machine learning to sort of predict the emergence of of zoonotic diseases like this. You know, she said, you know, what this shows, what you're doing here is it shows how risk is clumped. It's not evenly distributed across the earth. There are certain places where the risk is clumped And we can point to those places and say, you know, perhaps we should focus there. Perhaps we should focus our prevention efforts, our surveillance, our science, our funding, et cetera, et cetera. We can focus it at those places right there. Yeah. The beauty of what you've done, which is mapping out these jump zones, is that you can see where future outbreaks could happen. Can you just tick off what the hotspots are to you looking at the next decade or so? I think one that we should pay close attention to is uh, Southeast Asia and Laos in particular, because we visited a cave in a place called Phuong District, this once kind of remote area in, in Laos, where workers were harvesting bat guano in these big caves. They take it, they shovel it. Yeah, you took photos and there are all of these... There are just tons of bags, and people are doing this work barefoot. Yes, and they have, often they have cuts, burns, lesions from uh, exposure to the ammonia that's present because of the bat waste in these caves. But this place where they're working is where scientists from the Pasteur Institute recently found bats with coronaviruses that are the sort of closest match to SARS-CoV-2. It's the closest match that anyone has found in the wild. And so you have, you know, these workers in these caves doing this work. And one of the workers told us that they went to build a tourist site that that lures tourists to come and see these bats, you know, every night, like kind of like you've seen in Austin, Texas, where everybody goes and sits by the bridge to watch the bats come out. So this is a really good example, right, of a remote area that was once fairly disconnected that is now being connected to both, uh, you know, there's a new high-speed rail line that goes very close to this area, as well as a brand new expressway, the first one in Laos. 
Both of these are financed and built by the Chinese to speed goods that are being made in Laos to, to take it to China. And it also means people are moving on these trains. I think what you're talking about here is so important because, and I just want to focus in on it for one second, because the work that these people have been doing in this cave in Laos has been happening a very long time, is my understanding. Is that right? Sure. But what's new is all of the development, the high-speed rail, the highways, the interest in tourism and luring people to these areas. And it's this kind of, if you build it, they will come thing, where these remote regions with some risk, that risk might have been able to be mitigated before simply because they were remote. And that's just not the case anymore. That's right. And if you look, um, my colleague Grant Smith did a pretty interesting analysis to simulate what would happen if a virus emerged in this town in the Amazon called Altamira. And, you know, because of the air travel connections in Brazil and then Brazil around the rest of the world, it was able to infect, according to this model, this novel virus, you know, could infect, I believe the number is 1.2 billion, which dwarfs the spread of COVID-19 within six months. So, yes, uh, we are interconnected in a way that we never were before. And with that comes new risks. We'll be back after a break. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ryan's team has identified a few solutions when it comes to stopping zoonotic spillover. But naming the answers is a lot easier than putting them into practice. Ryan actually compared the scope of the problem here and its intractability to climate change. There are a few things that sort of need to happen to help mitigate risks. One of those is governments have to identify and acknowledge the risks associated with, you know, these bat-rich areas. But then we're also talking about, you know, more money. The World Bank and others have estimated $10 billion a year is needed to help developing countries cut risk and respond to outbreaks. Some might say that's a lot of money, but I guess the counter would be how much did COVID-19 cost people around the world. Governments must mandate health risk assessments before approving projects that disrupt bat habitats. And so you're talking about a couple of things, right? You're talking about this battle between the global economy and, you know, this risk to humanity. And there's some similarities to that with climate change. Yeah, because, I mean, you're what you're saying is the larger countries, the richer countries may not want the risk of a pandemic. But that also means telling smaller countries, poorer countries stop economically expanding 
in this way. Stop exploiting your resources. Stop expanding into these regions where you're going to come up against these bat populations or just, you know, kind of destroy these these natural habitats. And that's a complicated thing to do. Yeah, say you're Liberia. And, you know, this ArcelorMittal mine that I mentioned, you know, they are Liberia's largest taxpayer. So if you're the government of a country like Liberia, you know, you've got choices to make. Yeah. I mean, I found the comparison between pandemic preparedness and and climate change response alarming for a couple of reasons. Like the first reason was that I think a lot of people would say, we haven't been responding especially well to climate change. (laughs) So it doesn't really engender a lot of hope to make the comparison here. But I guess the other thing that stands out to me is that with climate change, while you can argue that the global community isn't doing what it needs to do to meet the moment, there is at least a large-scale mobilization happening. You see massive multinational agreements and conferences. People are talking about it all the time. I don't see anything like that for pandemic prevention. Well, the World Health Organization is is hosting international negotiations toward a pandemic treaty that would be legally binding in all the nations that sign up. The organizations involved in these talks are pushing for the treaty to acknowledge this this one health concept, which is the idea that, you know, that we should treat wildlife health and human health as two sides of the same coin. So, you know, there are talks. Um, you know, it's not for me to opine where, you know, where there's a, those are going to go. Uh, but they do exist. I guess we'll just, we just don't know. <laughs> we don't know where they're going to land right now. Because it, reading your reporting, like, it's impossible to miss the fact that this viral spread is being driven by huge economic changes in vulnerable places. And your reporting team gives these examples of public health authorities, like, locally, doing things like broadcasting warnings to people in in remote places who live near bats, urging them not to eat potentially contaminated food. And it just seems like putting all this pressure on the most vulnerable in this situation to help themselves rather than addressing the fact that, okay, there's a giant mine here and maybe there's going to be another mine down the street (laughs) in a little bit, you know? You know, it takes a lot of things for a spillover to happen. There are lots of risk factors. And so maybe it's one of those things where it's about addressing as many possible things as you can. Maybe it's about don't eat the fruit that has bite marks on it. Maybe it's don't drink date palm sap. It's also about, you know, the international community funding surveillance and and research and scientists to go into these areas and do the work that they need to do. It's also an international treaty that requires impact assessments, biological impact assessments. So maybe it's about multiple layers of protection, taking action in multiple ways, because these viruses can find different pathways. It just needs the right one. Your story is obviously not a happy one necessarily. Like there's a lot of challenges your team has revealed. But I also do kind of feel like there's something sweet underlying the reporting, 
which is this connection that we have with the natural world around us, including bats. Like, I think some people could read the headline of your story or like a few paragraphs and be like, ugh, like these bats are dirty, like get them away from me. But I wonder if after all this reporting years, you kind of see it differently. Well, bats are so important to our existence. They're pollinators. They're so important to the ecosystems. And, you know, what we do to them and their world, and that's the same goes for lots of other animals as well, can affect our own health. So do unto others as <laughs> you'd want them to do unto you. Perhaps that's the way to put it. Ryan, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Ryan McNeil is the London-based deputy editor for the Reuters Global Data Journalism team. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow.